Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. on FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. So today uh, I'm really excited. We've got Mark Gober. Thank you for being here, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, wow, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, so, first of all, um, what made you get into writing? Uh, this book, this book, and, and it's um, and it's the end to upside down thinking. Um, wh- where did this come from? Well, the topic of the book is is on the notion of consciousness and the mind. And when I tell people about that topic, they typically wonder if I if I work in as a scientist professionally or if I'm a philosopher. And I'm actually neither. I work in business. I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley, where we advise technology companies on their business strategy and innovations. And prior to that, I worked in investment banking with UBS in New York during the financial crisis. So from 2008 to 2010, I was there. And prior to that, I was a student at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team. So on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's much overlap between what I've done throughout most of my life and this book that I just wrote on consciousness and it all started about two years ago when I was actually just listening to podcasts for out of personal interest. And one podcast came on that sparked my interest in these topics. And the very short story is I ended up researching just because I wanted to understand things better for about a year and then decided to put my research on paper, which is the book that was published last month. So if, if I were to ask you, what is consciousness? <laughs> How would you answer a great question. Well, anyone who is listening to this phone call right now has an awareness. They have a mind, uh, a subjective inner experience, which is difficult to describe with language, but we all have it. It's all there. Uh, it's there for all of us. That's what I mean by consciousness. So when I say I am speaking to you right now, that I subjectively is what I mean by consciousness. Hmm. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I understand consciousness. So the book is about consciousness. So what what is the upside down thinking that people have engaged in, and then what what makes your thinking upside right? <laughs> well, what I what I now think is upside down thinking is a philosophy and science that's known as materialism, and it's something that I subscribed to perhaps unknowingly for most of my life until I got into this research. And it basically says the following, and we're going to go pretty deep pretty quickly. So this is getting back to how the universe 
originated. So 13.8 billion years ago, there was some event that started the universe. It's typically called the Big Bang, and it filled the universe with physical material that we call matter. So when I touch my table, that's made of atoms of matter. So you have a big universe with lots of matter in it, and you're bound to end up with uh, pieces of matter interacting, and we call that chemistry. So we started with matter, and now we have chemical reactions between those pieces of matter. With enough random chemical reactions in this big universe, chance tells us that we're bound to end up with a type of a molecule that can replicate itself, like DNA. So DNA on Earth leads to biological organisms, like a human being, which develops a brain, and from the brain comes that very consciousness that we just spoke of, that, that subjective experience that we all seem to have. So this is the perspective that I am challenging in my book, which is the perspective that says matter creates consciousness through a brain. The brain creates consciousness. That is what I am challenging, in which before my research, I didn't even know that there was something to challenge there. So, so if the brain doesn't create it, what does? The, the thesis that, that the evidence in my book points towards is the notion that this perspective of matter creates consciousness or the brain creates consciousness has it backwards, that consciousness is actually first in the picture and that everything in the material world is an experience within consciousness. So as Max Planck, who is a famous quantum physicist, he won the Nobel Prize. In 1931, he looked at the findings of quantum physics and he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental and I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. So it's not matter creates consciousness, which is my old, was my old perspective and it's the perspective of much of modern science and mainstream thinking, but rather consciousness is primary to matter. So let me just drill down a little bit then. I guess if my question is, like, where does consciousness come from? I mean, can, can you give a you know, more clear, specific answer on that? Because if that's primary, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did that come about? Because we can explain matter, right? If we say, well, the Big Bang happened and then it shot matter everywhere and we now have planets and stars. But, I mean, are you looking at consciousness in the way that religious people might look at a god and say, well, it's just, it's just there. It's, it always have been. The way I think about it, and this is what I get to at the very, very end of the book after compiling the research, is it's when you ask the question of what, um, what, what created consciousness or how did it come about, that implies linear time, that there is a past to present to future, and, and I think science is continuing to challenge that notion that linear time is sort of an illusion of the human mind. It's a way that we are able to perceive things, but rather consciousness is beyond sp- all space and time. So where I come out on this is that consciousness simply is beyond space and time, and it's not something that our human mind can really uh, comprehend with the way that we think about things. So I guess my concern with that, and that's all fine and good, but it's like I like to explain things that we don't know with things that we do know, and it seems like you're appealing you know, to the mystery of consciousness with a bigger mystery. You know, saying, well, you know, um, we're not really sure where it comes from, it just is. So, I, I, I mean, what what value does that really have for us if, we, if we're just saying it just exists sort of, I guess, magically? Well, so m- most of the, the evidence that I, I provide in my book, and we can get into the, the science behind it, is the evidence that we all have innate, I'll call them psychic abilities, like telepathy, precognition, like knowing the future before it happens, things along those lines, which suggest that consciousness is not at least localized to the body, which is not something that would be predicted at all by the conventional thinking of consciousness. And the other uh, area that I discuss in the book is the evidence that consciousness survives when the body dies, because at least conceptually, the consciousness was never tied to the body in the first place. But there's, I think, also strong evidence which suggests that's true. So to getting to your question of, well, why does it matter and what value does it have to us, these start to point to you know, questions about human potential and things about life and death, which I think pertain to, to everybody, and at some level people care about them to different degrees. So does, so does your model of this suggest that there is life after death, that consciousness will carry on? Yes, that's what I think the evidence points towards most strongly, the notion that when the body dies, consciousness does not die. And, and and is there a particular vehicle that that carries that consciousness forward? Is it 
um, I guess what some people would call a spirit. Is there something measurable about it? Does it go to a heaven or? I think a lot of that is not well understood. The best mm-hmm. pieces of evidence we have, and I have, I have three chapters on this that are kind of independently pointing in this direction. But those are the things everybody wants to know. <laughs> yeah. Particularly well, the I think, people. <laughs> well, I think what we can do is, is piece together uh, bits from evidence, but we, you know, I think the full picture is still a big mystery. And one of the reasons I felt so compelled to write the book is that, like you say, these are huge questions that everyone wants to know the answers to. And until we're devoting, I think, real scientific effort towards these topics, which is not currently happening, um, it, we won't we won't at least even have a chance at, at getting to those answers. Well, so, I'm, you know, thinking about science going forward, what do you think has to happen now? Because we have your book. Um, you make a fairly large claim. You, you know, is there evidence that could be put forward that that could sort of uh, um, underscore your point? I mean, is there anything well, that could be done? I mean, if this is something that sort of it just is, and we can't measure it because it's not material, is there is there any way for us to confirm um, its existence? Well, I think I think the best we can probably do is is look at evidence that points in that direction. Uh, but I think that the conventional perspective of matter creates consciousness suffers from a lot of problems on its own, which I didn't realize until I, again, until I really dug into the research. Number one, we, we call stuff matter, like I look at my table and it seems like it's solid, but then at the atomic level, uh, an atom is, is 99.99999, et cetera, percent empty space. So it's not as solid as it seems to be. And then we learn from quantum physics something known as the observer effect, which is that when we are observing, uh, a particle behaves like a particle, which is what we would predict. But what, we would, what is counterintuitive is that when we're not observing, a particle behaves like a wave of probability. In other words, it doesn't even have a definite location. So when we think about matter, it is, number one, not solid in the way that we think it is, and number two, it's not even really there in a physical form unless it's observed, and that's what quantum physics is teaching. So I think there's a big, number one, there's a big question around well, what is matter. But then secondly, there's a conceptual issue around um, can we, could we even prove the notion that matter created and preceded consciousness, which is what the materialist perspective would say, is that, again, the universe started with matter and matter came together, formed a human being, and then a human being became conscious. In order to prove that anything really exists, it requires some consciousness to experience it. Like the anything beyond consciousness is not technically provable. It's, it requires a leap of faith or an inference. So to say that there was a material universe before any form of consciousness requires a leap of faith because that prior universe, that's hypothetical, that, that, you know, that universe before consciousness could not have been experienced by definition. And this is actually something that Albert Einstein acknowledged. I think he was very humble. He said, he was a materialist, but he said, look, I cannot prove that my conception is right. In other words, the conception that matter preceded consciousness. He said, but that is my religion. In other words, it requires this leap of faith of, oh, I just think there was matter before consciousness. Whereas with consciousness, we all have it. It is what I would call the known. It's, it's unquestionable that we're all conscious right now. Whereas this notion of a material universe before consciousness, that is unknown. So I would argue, and others agree with this perspective, is that it's actually more skeptical to start with consciousness because it's, it's the only thing that we actually know. Everything else is an inference. Did that make sense? Well, let me push a little bit further because is consciousness something that we're all sort of feeding into? Do we each have an individual consciousness? Because, I mean, I, 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 mean, I guess I have to take a leap of faith um, to deal with the problem of, of what's called hard solipsism. Like, you know, am I really experiencing the things around me or am I just a brain in the jar, like like in the Matrix? Um, so, you know, so I have to sort of accept, you know, the world that I experience is real. And if you want to call that a leap of faith, I guess you could. But, you know, all, all my senses are, you know, everything I experience is sort of reliable based on what I can, you know, um, understand. Um, but is there something bigger than my consciousness? Is my consciousness linked into other people's consciousness? Is there a consciousness that wasn't human and didn't didn't address humans before and existed at the time of the Big Bang and before humans came about? 
Well, to answer your first point about the notion that what you are experiencing has the appearance of being real, I'm not denying that at all. What I'm saying is that anything that that is outside of of any form of consciousness is by definition not provable, right? So, and then by taking that even further, the notion that there was a universe before any consciousness is also unprovable. So I think that's just kind of innate in in, in experience. Well, but but number two. But, but well, I want to push you on that before we get to number two. I mean, don't cosmologists, aren't they receiving light from other sides of the universe, you know, from, you know, millions of years ago, from probably from, from before the evolution of, of, of man? Okay, so, this, so that argument, I've heard that a number of times, that presumes the very question that is called the hard problem of consciousness, and Science Magazine has called it the number two question in all of science which is how does a brain produce consciousness? That argument presumes that all this evolution was required for consciousness to emerge, which is the very question that we don't know the answer to. So just the fact that we see light does not tell us anything about whether there was consciousness. Well, it tells us that there was light. And right. That it but then, from somewhere, right? But it's still the question of where, is, is it is it knowable or provable that consciousness or that ma- the material universe was before consciousness? And I'm, what I'm arguing is that it is technically not provable. Okay. Um, so, so I want to move ahead just a little bit. So you said you have evidence um, of consciousness that includes like psychic ability and, and, and whatnot. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that sounds very yeah. fascinating. Yeah, so that's actually the majority of the book. So what we've just talked about, and you've asked some great questions, which is looking at the framework of there are some questions with this materialist perspective. Like it's the number two question in Science Magazine, how does the brain produce consciousness? So that's what I'm looking at because, look, we all have consciousness. It's, it's pretty amazing that we, there's still a big question about our mind. So most of the book is the evidence that points in this alternative direction that I suggest. Now, one of the phenomena that I talk about in the category of psychic abilities is known as remote viewing which is the ability to perceive something with the mind alone. So without actually being there physically, some people are able to like see things, even though they've never seen it before. Now, what's the evidence for that? I talk about a number of different areas. One is a U.S. government-sponsored program that was run for over 20 years during the Cold War. And uh, it was run out of the Stanford Research Institute run by laser physicists, and they all talk about it as being a real thing that was being used. The remote viewers themselves talk about it as being real, But to me, what was one of the more compelling things that I found in my research is that the CIA recently declassified documents from that period, and they talk about remote viewing. So I was able to include those in my book, and I'll just read you a few quotes from these, you know, previously confidential reports. The first line of one of the slides, remote viewing is a real phenomenon and is not degraded by distance or shielding. And then they show a science panel that looked at this, including some prominent people, scientists from Caltech. And then they have a slide on the science panel's report and the principal findings. They say, again, direct quotes, implications are revolutionary. Evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. Right? So just as a, a business person, like if I had a, a case in business where I saw evidence like that, it's just I have to somehow reconcile that, what, what's going on there. Um, and that's just one piece of evidence that the U.S. government had the, a program, and there, there have been even confirmations from former U.S. President Jimmy Carter that this was used in certain instances. But beyond that, what really surprised me is that Princeton University had a lab for 27 years. And I was a student at Princeton and didn't even know about this because I guess it was so controversial. But it was run by the former dean of engineering, Dr. Robert John, who was a very smart guy, basically a rocket scientist. And he was looking at some of these phenomena, including remote viewing, and he also found that there was a statistical effect that people were able to, beyond chance, see things at a distance without, um, without doing it through ordinary means, which is, again, suggestive of this notion that consciousness is somehow not localized uh, to our, our current, where we are located right now. It can be beyond the body itself. Yeah, so some of this reminds me, maybe Al can chime in for a minute. I mean, this reminds me of like, like Uri Geller. I mean, this is his argument is that people have these powers that are sort of innate and people can see things. So, yeah, so in this particular case, are you trying to say that there's one center of consciousness 
and that we all tap into it somehow? Or are we all like, how, how do we connect uh, with, yeah. with it? Like, how does great, that work? Because you say, you say, okay, so I get run over by a truck on the way home here, so my body's dead, but my, my brain or my consciousness is still attached to some bigger unit, or how does that work? So the way I like to think about this is, is an analogy that's used by Dr. Bernardo Castro, who says if, if we imagine all of reality as being like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness, each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream. So a whirlpool is just a localization of water, and that would be like me, you, and each of us is having a localized experience, but we're fundamentally made of, of consciousness. So we're connected as part of the broader stream. As Erwin Schrodinger, the famous physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. And that's kind of the same argument that I'm making, which is that we're all part of this stream. We are individual whirlpools, localized, having personalized experiences, but we're fundamentally interconnected at the level of the broader stream of consciousness. Okay, so I, I guess I want to push a little bit on this point, because when you bring up things like remote viewing, and, you know, it reminds me of the opening scene at Ghostbusters, where, you know, Bill Murray playing Dr. Peter Venkman, you know, he has a guy in the lab, and, and the guy can see what's on these cards he's holding up, and he zaps him when he gets one wrong, and eventually starts getting him right, but he keeps zapping him anyway, um, all because he wants to hit on the pretty girl, Um so that comes to mind, but I, I, I mean, I'm not sure that the evidence of any of the, these things is really that strong. I mean, and just to name one thing, just up the road from me um, is James Randi. Um, he lives up in Fort Lauderdale, I think, and I happened to bump into him just a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas at a conference. But he's had a million-dollar prize out there for anyone who can prove these sort of abilities that you're talking about under controlled conditions. And no one's ever even come close. I mean, at best, these, uh, you know, these sort of powers seem to be, you know, chance occurrences, and that's about it. Yeah, I think you'd have to probably ask the scientists as to whether, you know, they wanted to participate in, in things like that and, you know, what the fine print was of that study. But I think there are some very credible places like the American Psychologist, which is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Psychological Association which just a few months ago um, approved a study that talks about the statistical evidence for all these phenomena. And in spite of all the controversy around these topics, they still approved the article. And what did the article, well, what was the conclusion of the article? I will read you the exact conclusion, which to me is, is powerful because it's, you know, this is a, a credible uh, body in science. So this is what Dr. Cardenia summarizes in the study. He's the, the scientist from Lund University. He says, quote, the evidence provides cumulative support for the reality of psychic phenomena, which cannot readily be explained away by the quality of the studies, fraud, selective reporting, experimental or analytical incompetence, or other frequent criticisms. The evidence is comparable to that for established phenomena in psychology and other disciplines, end quote. But the problem is it's really not, and you can quote that that one person, but we don't have hundreds of studies popping up in, in psychology journals or other journals that show these sorts of abilities. I mean, right. we have one or two or one here, and they generally tend to get ripped to shreds once people get into the statistical reporting of it. So I mean, I mean, yeah. I you know, one person can say this that that the evidence is good, but that's different than the than the evidence actually being good. Right, but I mean, this is the American Psychological Association that approved it, and I actually spoke with the scientist, and he said he was really put through the ringer on this because they had to, you know, this is a, a credible institution that put it out, and they looked at the the statistics that were run on the cumulative studies, and they approved it. Yeah, but I mean, to me, that's an argument from authority. And, and like I said, if 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 everyone had these sorts of powers and and they could be tested and shown to be real, then we would have hundreds and hundreds of of these sort of studies showing that everyone could do remote viewing, everyone could predict the future, people can communicate psychically with each other, and we just don't have that. At best, you have a handful of of, of studies out there. Um, many of which are of questionable value and questionable methodology. 
Um, and, and I guess that's what sort of concerns me. It doesn't say that these things don't exist, but what I am trying to say is that the evidence for the, for, for these sorts of things are far weaker than for, um, you know, other more material things. Well, I think part of the problem is that the areas are so controversial that if you're at a mainstream institution, you can barely even talk about these things if you want to get tenure. So there's kind of a bias against even wanting to explore these things, which I think is part of the reason it's not explored quite as much. Uh, but I do, I do think there actually is a strong body of evidence when you, when you pull it all together that, that some of these effects are real and sometimes they're not as extreme as what's described in the U.S. government because there does seem to be a distribution of talent, just like in basketball. You have Michael Jordan, and then you have people who can dribble a basketball. But everyone can dribble a basketball to some degree. And maybe programs like the U.S. government or certain people that just happen to have natural talents for reasons that we don't fully understand, they, they kind of stand out. Uh, but there are studies like um, studies on telepathy, which I discuss, where people have um, – I can give just the basic description of the study. Can you see it's a t- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's a statistical effect. In other words, it's not as dramatic as what's shown at the U.S. government. But it's known as the Gonsfeld procedure, and you have one person in a room who is put into a relaxed state. You have another person in another room who is um, looking at a picture or some video clip that the experimenters show, and the, one, the person in the room who's relaxing, we'll call him Bob, Bob doesn't know what the other person is looking at. And this other person is supposedly sending mental images of what he or she is seeing. So then Bob comes out of his relaxed state, and he's asked, He's shown four pictures, and he's asked which of the four was being mentally sent, sent to him, allegedly. And we would predict that if it were just a chance guess, that Bob would guess correctly over time, one out of four times. And what the statistics seem to show is that it's closer to 32%. And these, again, are just everyday people. So when you look at the statistics on it, there's something that's happening beyond what chance can show, and it takes lots of trials and, and combining data to get there. 
but it seems like there's some effect that is not well accounted for by traditional science. So you would say there's an effect. You wouldn't say that people would have perfect prediction of the future or perfect ability to read minds or to see to see events remotely. It seems like it's kind of an erratic thing where it's not necessarily perfect and maybe some people are better than others, but the fact that there is any effect to me is something that science or any kind of scientific framework should be able to account for. Do you let me go a little bit further on the psychic stuff? Do you think that that it, given your view on consciousness, do you think that people can 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 speak to the dead or contact the dead or or make contact with consciousness, people's consciousness after they've passed? So again, the number of controlled studies on this is is limited relative to other areas for some of the same reasons I, I mentioned. But there have been two studies in peer-reviewed journals on psychic mediums, and they're run by the Winbridge Research Center, using five levels of blinding, where the medium who allegedly can speak to the dead is on the phone, and all the medium gets is the first name, and the medium seems to bring back information that is beyond chance. Again, it's two studies. It's definitely not enough to draw conclusions, but I think it's enough to say we should be exploring this more under controlled scientific conditions. What do you think about the uh, TV personalities who who claim to have these powers, like uh, Long uh, Island Medium? Yeah, the Long Island Medium, or I think there's an I think there's an LA psychic who's on the E Network now, and uh, I think John Edward is another oh, yeah. one. Yeah, I'm sure there are some people that are better better than others, and I think we should use standards of science to test these things. Um, but whether or not any one individual psychic is real or not or fraudulent is, is not really the point. The point is whether or not there is a phenomenon that exists that's beyond chance to me. Because if there is, then we just have to be able to account for it if we want to advance in science. Because that would be a major shift to understand that something is happening beyond our current understanding. Uh, oh, of course. So I know Al had Uri Geller on a couple of weeks ago, and I think Uri sort of claims to have these, these powers. Yeah, he he's right into that. He he um, he's not so much a psychic as he is um, sort of like kind of how you're explaining one consciousness and his ability to tap into that and his ability yeah. to work with his consciousness rather than to be a psychic uh, per se. Because Uri Geller got big um, in the '70s, bending spoons supposedly with his mind, but I think he's made money more recently um, locating underground water and underground minerals and, and, and whatnot for, for corporations. So I guess he has some sort of, uh, um, he claims to have like a remote viewing for underground for particular things. So yeah. I actually talk about Yuri Geller in the book and Part of what the CIA recently disclosed, they declassified our documents on the studies they ran on Yuri Geller, at least for his remote viewing abilities. So I'll read you a quote from the report. It says, experiments Yuri Geller at SRI, which is Stanford Research Institute, August 4th to 7th, excuse me, 4th to 11th, 1973. And what it says is, as a result of Geller's success in this experimental period, we consider that he has demonstrated his paranormal perceptual ability in a convincing and unambiguous manner. And they say, in these experiments, Geller was separated from the target material either by an electrically shielded, excuse me, electrically isolated shielded room or by the isolation provided by having the targets drawn on the East Coast when he was obviously in Stanford. So again, I'm just reading direct quotes from declassified CIA documents. And again, just as an objective person, I wonder what's going on. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't blame you to say, you know, I, I wonder what's going on here. I just think it's a big leap to go from that to say, well, Uri Geller must have psychic powers. I mean, there are, uh, you know, most of the tricks that Geller did um, can be explained in other ways, like when he bent keys or um, melted spoons in his hand. Um, once you put that under controlled conditions, all of a sudden he lost his power. Um, I mean, this happened on the Tonight Show and 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 the Stanford stuff that you mentioned. I mean, a lot of those experiments were infiltrated by James Randi and his his people, like Banachek. And and much of what happened there was just the scientists wanting to believe so hard 
um, in their hypotheses that they they weren't being quite as controlled as they as they should have been, um, and a lot of it just wound up them being tricked um, when they when they knew better, but they just wanted to believe so hard in the stuff. I mean, that's not to say it's not real at all. It's just to say that 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 that, that, that the scientific evidence um, isn't always that good, and it's it has yet to 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 uh, um, reach a, a, a critical mass, I would say. So I'll read you another quote from, this is from Dr. Jessica Utz, who's the 2016 president of the American Statistics Association. She was a statistician who Congress and the CIA asked about all this stuff in 1995 to look at the actual experiments and methodologies used on these types of studies. And this is what she said in her publicly available report. So again, this to me, just as an objective person, seems like a credible person to evaluate statistics, and she was doing it for Congress and the CIA. What she says is, quote, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. The statistical results of the studies examined are far beyond what is expected by chance. Arguments that these results could be due to methodological flaws in the experiments are soundly refuted. Effects of similar magnitude to those found in government-sponsored research have been replicated at a number of laboratories across the world. Such consistency cannot readily ex ex be explained by claims of flaws or fraud. This is a robust effect that, were it not in such an unusual domain, would no longer be questioned by science as a real phenomenon. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really neat quote. But the problem is, you know, from 23 years ago, but the problem is since that time we haven't had hundreds and hundreds of, of studies um, showing this, right? So, right. I mean, I can understand how some people would have it more and some people would have it less, and maybe maybe it's a little bit elusive, but, but if we were testing for these things over and over again, you can't say on the one hand it's hard to test for and we can't always find it, and on the other hand we have some, some studies that find it. I mean, what I would expect if these things didn't exist is exactly what we have, is a handful of studies and a handful of quotes rather than a thousand studies all showing the same thing under all sorts of different controlled circumstances. Right. To me, it goes back to this idea that it's so controversial and there's been so much negative press that, I mean, if you're a scientist, do you want to stick your neck out? And I think there's kind of a collective fear of even exploring these areas, which is one of the reasons I wanted to put this information out to hopefully get more people to look at this so that we could have exactly what you say, which is thousands of studies run under all kinds of different conditions and have more funding towards these areas. Yeah, and that's fine. And I would understand how if you were a, um, you know, a junior professor, it might not be the sort of thing you'd want to get into. I mean, like we saw in Ghostbusters, I mean, you know, they do all get kicked out of Columbia, and that's yeah. how they have to go into private practice. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I've, had, I've talked to a lot of the scientists, and actually yeah. I have my own podcast coming out in a few months where I have the recorded interviews, and many of them tell me the same thing. And these are people who have left academia or who used to be in academia. One in particular, she told me, this is at a very mainstream, uh, prominent academic institution she studied psychology but also uh, precognition which is the notion that like the body can sense things before the future is even known at a statistical level like Daryl Bem type studies things mm -hmm. like that she was told you should take this off your resume if you want to progress in the institution so she ended up leaving yeah, yeah I could see if you weren't tenured you would yeah. be concerned but if you were but once you're tenured and you wanted to get into this area and you could produce valid evidence um, I, 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 you know, that's the whole point of tenure is to protect people so they can do this sort of work. I mean, maybe it needs more funding, maybe it needs more um, people, but I, I mean, I think there are a lot of things where I think there would be pressure not to get into if you're a if you're a psychology professor. But this doesn't seem one of them if the evidence was good and if the studies were good. Yeah. Uh, and now, now, when you write up um, a description about the book. You're saying that uh, today's disarray around the globe can be linked at its core to a fundamental misunderstanding of our reality. And this book aims to shift our collective outlook, reshaping our view of human potential and how we treat one another. So, so 
exactly what do you mean by that? Like, what is it that that's going to happen from this book to get to where you want it to be? What What do you want people to to react like? Well, I ultimately want people to take it however they want to take it. What I want it to do is to put the evidence into one place for people so that they can see everything and draw their own conclusions. But for me and the research that I've done, I think there's something that's real here, and it, it points to something that is not the conventional materialist perspective, that matter creates consciousness through a brain, but rather that consciousness is primary, and that seems, to, at least to me, to be the, the most reasonable metaphysics to account for these things. And that has implications for things like human potential. Are we more than we, what we've been taught that we are? But also, are we fundamentally interconnected <clears throat> Excuse me, at the level of consciousness? And to me, that's where it starts to become very powerful in terms of thinking about things socially. If we're actually connected beyond what our eyes show us, and this is something I probably would have rolled my eyes at before I got into the research, but it seems like there is an interconnectedness which suggests that the separation that I think is at the root of, of many of the problems we see in the world today, that that, that sense of separation uh, might not actually be accurate. So I think appreciating an interconnectedness, if it can be further proven scientifically or, or at least pointed in that direction, I think has implications for how we treat one another. So you're, you're, you're in essence saying that if we become more in tune with this, this line of thinking, that we will... Um, we will put aside the biases, uh, you know, like racism and sexism and all the things going on in the world today right now in general. Uh, this yeah, will take our mind and we will start being more together than separate. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a natural byproduct of appreciating an interconnectivity, which is not one that's I, I certainly didn't appreciate that before, and it's not what our eyes seem to show us. And... Now, you also say the book, uh, the book's implications encourage much-needed revisions in science, technology, and medicine. So what exactly do you mean by that? Well, if, if we in, in mainstream science today view consciousness as just being a byproduct of the brain, which again is, it, like I said, it's, it's the number two question in all of science. How is it that a physical body produces a non-physical consciousness? We don't know how it happens. So let's just say consciousness is not just a byproduct of the brain, and if it's more fundamental than matter, then that has a big effect on how we look at all of our scientific equations. We have to account for this factor. And one has to wonder, 96% of the universe is known as dark matter or dark energy. It's this unknown stuff that is there, but we don't understand what it is. What if part of that has to do with consciousness, or there's some big thing in the universe that we're not fully appreciating in our science? I think that could have a big impact on science and technology, um, and also medicine. I mean, our body is, is physical, and if consciousness is primary to matter, primary to even biology, then what is the interaction there, and what can the mind, uh, how can the mind interplay with health? So are we living on a flat earth? <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking, do I think the earth is flat? <laughs> yeah, no, it just it just the it's a, we we get a lot of that. But yeah, yeah, well, so I think I I do think the analogy is valid in that I I think we're at the cusp of a revolution on that scale where we used to think the earth is flat and now we know it's not. Then the, with Copernicus, we used to think that the earth was the center of the solar system. Then there was a big revolution to realize wait, the earth revolves around the sun. I think this might be the next one. And a number of other scientists are kind of calling for this Copernican level revolution in terms of thinking of consciousness. How, how, would we, how would we realize that the revolution is coming? How would we, um, Joe and I, and, uh, and just our common folk here, how is it that we're going to pick this up? Or is it something we're going to pick up from this tapped-in consciousness? <laughs> I wish I knew. I have no idea. I, I don't think no one living has been through a, a, a revolution in thinking on the scale of Copernicus or you know, realizing the Earth isn't flat. So... Who knows how a, a shift in thinking would occur, whether it's on that, I don't know, collective level or if it's just kind of a, on the level of education where certain things that are not taught are being taught in future generations and it just becomes the new, the new normal that is currently not considered normal. I don't know. I mean, I think you're right. That the, I mean, these things do have very big implications. I mean, I, I mean, the argument that atheists make is that, you know, they want to say the soul isn't real and there is no afterlife. Um, or at least they say there's no evidence of such. 
And I say that should make people value what they do on Earth that much more, and their hope is that would improve behavior um, now. I guess if you say there is a soul that lives on, you know, forever in some other plane of being, I mean, does that devalue what we have here with our physical bodies? That's a good question. I think it, it brings up all those questions of, of meaning and what does it mean to be in the body if there's something beyond the body and is there accountability for the things that we do. Um, so I talk about near-death experiences in my book, and, and that's a topic that is conventionally thought of as just being a hallucination caused by a dying brain. Uh, but I think there is compelling evidence that's coming, especially out of cardiac arrest patients, where people are clinically dead, and yet they're having these near-death experiences. And sometimes they're having what's known as a veridical out-of-body experience, where what they claim to be seeing from some vantage point outside their body is verified as being accurate by other people in the room. And there was actually a study by Dr. Sam Parnia in a 2014 journal called Resuscitation, where one of the, the patients in cardiac arrest had very specific memories of things that were time-stamped because they have all the medical records of, of when he was clinically dead. So these things are very challenging from a conventional standpoint, which would predict we need a, a functioning brain to have a non-hallucinatory memory. But in any event, getting to your original question, what people report, and they've reported this throughout the ages, is a life review where they're like judging themselves for how they acted, and in some cases they are experiencing events in their life through the eyes of those that they affected, and they're judging themselves for how they made another person feel. So if one takes that literally, if one takes that literally, then that implies that there is kind of a self-accountability that people are reporting when they come back, which is that I'm judging myself for things that I should have known better for uh, in terms of how I treated people in the body. And we get these reports from people who didn't die, so it's not, we don't know if this is actually what happens when per the person dies, but people seem to come back very convinced that this is a, a real thing. Yeah, but it also, it seems like most of the um, people we've talked to that have had the uh, near-death experiences and even written about it, um, it th there seems to be a flow as well. Like um, every time, um, like when you have uh, Christians that die, they see Jesus and they see that sort of, uh, they have a different explanation than uh, what an atheist does and sometimes what other religion uh, does mm -hmm. a lot of it is affected by our mind so therefore uh, how dead how dead are we when we're having these experiences well i think it gets back to the question of you know what are we connected as part of the same consciousness or is there some kind of individuality within that broader stream like modulations within the stream of consciousness and maybe there is a bias in in terms of how in terms of a person being part of the stream in a certain way, that it's modulated in a different way, so that person has kind of their own view of, of reality, their own lens, and maybe that is what is biasing the experiences, but the experience itself is one that seems to be common, even though there are, uh, well, there seems to be cultural biases in some cases. Really, so, really in interesting. Now, um, what, so where do, you, where do you go next with this, with, with the research and the book? Um, what do you have planned next? I don't know. So th this, like I said, this, <laughs> you weren't I, I wrote the book on a whim. I mean, I, I researched for a year. I said it was 4th of July weekend in 2017, and I said, well, why don't I just try to write a book? So I just didn't leave my apartment in San Francisco for four days. And, again, I had done all the research. It was a matter of just putting it together. So I ended up writing more than half of the book that weekend and finished it over the next few weekends and then was fortunate to get – to find an agent and everything like that. So this was not a, like a premeditated thing in many ways. So I just felt passionate about it, and I, I hope the book has a positive effect on those who read it and those who want to read it. Uh, beyond that, I, I don't know. I, like I, I mentioned, I have a podcast that will be coming out where it's just another way to hear from scientists and, and people who have had experiences. For you know, Because for me, it was, it was kind of a disjointed process to find all this research in, in disparate areas. And what I wanted to do with the book is to bring together not only telepathy, but also remote viewing and near-death experiences and the University of Virginia studies on children who had these crazy memories of a previous life and put all these, these areas into one place and try to explain them using this, this consciousness-centric framework. The podcast is another way of, of bringing information together for people so that you can hear from what I think are some of the strongest minds in the area that exists today, and hopefully that the number of people will grow as more people become interested. But I, I think making the information available to people is something that I'm generally interested in doing. Well, that sounds good. What, what is your website so we can give it out to listeners? My website is my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K, 
G-O-B-E-R.com. And it has information on, on the book. And I'll announce the podcast through the website and social media once we have a, a launch date. Yeah, we'll have you up on our guest page, and that'll stay there forever and it'll have your your <laughs> link and and your book as well uh everyone we've had guest mark gober on and we've been talking about his book an end to upside down thinking dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the impl- impl- implications for everyday life thank you for being here thank you guys for having me and happy thanksgiving Happy Thanksgiving. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www houseofmystery.com Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.